This is 1 Timothy beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He was revealed in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, was believed in the world and taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. This is the word of the Lord. One commentator says this particular passage that we're looking at tonight, and we've kind of um, traveled along this road in this letter of 1 Timothy for some time. This is the ninth week, and we've, we've reached a critical moment in the letter. Uh, one commentator says this is arguably the passage of gravitas in the letter, if not the pastoral epistles as a collection. The pastoral epistles include First and Second Timothy, and then also Titus. And what this commentator is trying to communicate in kind of large words that most of us don't really use on a daily basis, is we've reached the, the moment of... Um, Severity. We've, we've reached the moment of true climax in this letter, and he would go on to say, and maybe even these three books as a whole, this is the moment. Some of you who know me know that this is one of my favorite movies, The Karate Kid. As I was growing up, not only did I have a crush on Elizabeth Shue, but I also probably wanted to be a karate person. Okay, um, we see here in this picture, and those of you just just humor me because a lot of people are, are kind of young here. How many of you have not seen the Karate Kid? What? My own wife? <laughs> what? <sighs> okay. <laughs> okay. I wasn't expecting that, guys. I don't know how that one slipped through the cracks, but we will remedy that very, very shortly. This is one of the greatest films of all time. Thank you. Okay. Um, so this is very, in, in short, we have Daniel LaRusso, who traveled, made the epic journey from New Jersey, land of exile, um, a place where you do not want to be, traveled across country with his mom. I guess she had a, a different job, and, and they landed themselves in California. Daniel struggled acclimating himself to the routines and the rhythms of California lifestyle from New Jersey, okay? Uh, he tried to train himself in the ways of Taekwondo, and it just didn't quite, didn't quite get it. We see Daniel struggling to win the affections of one Elizabeth Shue, whose name in the film escapes me at the moment, but he's chasing after this girl. Allie, Allie. very good, thank you, yes. Allie, trying to chase after Allie. Um, 
and to win her affection in a number of different, w different ways. One of those ways was, and I don't know why he got this idea, this is not good in, in real life, if Karate Kid was real life. He went to a school dance, danced with Allie, and then ticked off the guys that had been trying to beat him up for the previous couple of months. And we reach the passage of gravitas in the Karate Kid in this scene right here. Daniel pulls a prank on these guys who are dressed up as skeletons. Not a good idea. Runs away or tries to, but they finally chase him down and just beat him up big time. And it's at that moment that Mr. Miyagi, that very sensible and wise sensei, decides to take Daniel under, under his wing. Okay, This is the moment when Daniel's life reaches a point of severity or sincerity or this, this moment when things have to change, something has to happen. Eventually, we all know the end of the story, Kate. I'm going to, you, you do know the end of the, okay? Um, <laughs> that classic scene when Daniel is facing off against his arch enemy in the finals of this karate tournament, okay? All of this has led to, to this climactic moment, but, but in the background is this moment when things get very, very, very serious. I tried really hard to find a, a decent analogy. That one might not have worked, but maybe this one will work for you. I know it'll work for Josh Hill. Okay, so uh, a week or so ago, a week and a half, two weeks ago, um, LeBron James declared to the world that he was coming home. He wrote a letter, and instead of going the route that he went four years ago with making this big show and ending up on national television and saying that he was going to take his talents to South Beach and basically isolating himself from thousands upon thousands of people, he says very simply and plainly, before anyone ever cared where I would play basketball, I was a kid from Northeast Ohio. It's where I walked, it's where I ran, it's where I cried, it's where I bled. I gotta pause here for a second because there's this video going around the interwebs where um, Frank Caliendo is reading this letter as Morgan Freeman. And it's just, we'll, we'll try to put it on the Facebook page because it's, it's well worth your, your two minutes, but I can't not hear him in my head right now. Um, Northeast Ohio holds a special place in my heart People there have seen me grow up. I sometimes feel like I'm their son. Their passion can be overwhelming, but it drives me. I want to give them hope when I can. I want to inspire them when I can. My relationship with Northeast Ohio is bigger than basketball. I didn't realize that four years ago. I do now. Passage of gravitas. This moment in LeBron's journey where things are about to get serious. It's probably fair to say, um, that in his mind, he has dreamed about bringing a championship to Cleveland since he was a small kid. And it's probably fair to say that this is a moment in his career when we will look back and liken it, as many sports commentators will, to that moment in The Karate Kid when Daniel's son is running away from his, his enemies that are wearing skeleton uniforms. Okay, Probably not drawing that comparison, but it's that moment of... Things are getting serious now. We've reached that point in 1 Timothy. We began our journey in, um, in verse 3, where Paul very explicitly lays out the task that he is bestowing a, to Timothy. It says, as I urge you when leaving for Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. So Paul's leaving 
Uh, and he wants Timothy to stay so that you might command certain people not to teach different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote useless speculations rather than faithfulness to God's way of ordering the world. This is that moment in the beginning of the book where this is, Timothy, your charge. Timothy, this is, is what you need to do for me so that the gospel can be declared with power and that people can accept it and make it their own in a way that's, that's appropriate. Here, the problem is people have been taking it and distorting it. They've been te- teaching different doctrines and devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which is only bringing about speculation and problems. From this moment, Paul just starts on with some instructions to Timothy, and this will lead up to our text that we're looking at tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The instructions that Paul has been giving is, one, um, this example that I probably have been hammering home a lot more than most commentators or Bible scholars would be, because I think it's one of the most pertinent things in this letter for us as a community, this idea of intentional discipleship or mentorship. The example that we get of Paul leaving and entrusting Timothy with this work could not have been done without hours upon hours of painstaking discipleship where Paul is just giving everything that he has into this young man's life completely developing this this person in the ways of doctrine and in the ways of godliness. So much so that he begins to trust Timothy to go do the work. Um, I have this tendency at times, and I think this has been instilled to me by my father, um, if you want something done right, you do it yourself. At times, it's difficult for me to let go of that. But here you can see just this picture of, of Paul completely trusting his protege, if you will, to go and do the work. I think that as a community, and I won't, I won't belabor all these points quite as much as this one, but I do hope, and as, as a leadership team, like we are praying that people will begin to catch the vision of intentional discipleship where we begin to say, I can offer myself to someone else and pour into their lives. At some level, it's just a matter of being consistent in relationship with people. At another level, some of us have been down the road a bit farther than others, and there's things that we have to offer folks. The problem is it takes humility oftentimes to go say, hey, can you help me? And it takes something else to be able to say, hey, I want to help you. And I think those two different conversations scare us a lot, and we don't usually engage in those those things. We're setting ourselves up for, and I don't mean this to be a commercial, uh, in the fall doing small groups that are more interest-based small groups where we gather together because we like to do the same things. For example, um, cooking food with fresh ingredients that we've just got from the farmer's market or knitting or crocheting or something that I like to do would be totally different than that. Maybe like going through a book, like doing a book study or things like that. We just have common interests. But the only way that those sorts of groups will work is if the people in those groups are intentional about giving themselves to people, opening themselves up and taking the conversations from, hey, how was your week, to, hey, what's God teaching you in your life? From the normal pleasantries to, 
how are you dealing with this or that or these relationships or what about you know forgiving your parents or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or what what have you like those sorts of things where we start to move beyond just that scenario of, of knitting Okay, so we see an example of that, a very beautiful example where Paul is living that out. And this is, this is not something that he just does once and done, but Paul has folks throughout that he's got very close connections with within the churches and he's giving whatever he has to offer them to them, whether that's teaching or um, encouragement. Uh, he's, he's doing it. I would just continue to try to drill this home and look at my face when I say this to you. You have something to offer people. Don't sell yourselves short. You also have something that you can receive from other people. You have not arrived yet, and that includes me. There's still things that we need to learn and we need to have people in our lives to, to help us. Um, if there's ways that we can help you in that, please talk to us because this is something that we feel passionately about. So that's not necessarily in the letter, but it's there by, by implication. Paul goes on to talk about the law and how the law is good if it's used lawfully. It demonstrates that kind of bare minimum requirements that we have and how at times uh, we don't measure up to that. The law is good for telling us where we lack, but it doesn't go above and beyond to tell us how to be truly godly or to meet God's not just bare minimum requirements, but that ethical ideal where we become uh, more and more like his son. We learned about the law. We've learned about grace. And Paul says, I am the foremost of all sinners. Paul, the guy who writes 60% of our New Testament says, I am way beyond all of you with regard to sinfulness. Yet he didn't let that hold him back. He still becomes a teacher and one who is invested in the lives of people. We've, we've seen this idea of grace lived out in Paul's life, yet we still have a hard time accepting it in our own lives. This idea that Jesus wants us, that Jesus forgives us. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves but this is, this is in this letter where Paul is continuing to entrust Timothy, like, go teach these things. It's not just about all this speculation and genealogy. It's about, it's about the law being good, but it's also about grace, and it's also about discipline. Paul takes his job very seriously in the sense of it's not um, okay for us just to let things go. In fact, there's a couple guys, Paul says, where we had to hand them over to Satan. That was our last course of action was just to say, we can't, we can't help you. We've tried. We've tried through teaching the word. We've tried through prayer, but you guys are kind of, you've gone rogue and you just need to go. It wasn't something that they did that was callous or it wasn't something that they did just to get the problem child out of the room, so to speak. It was something that they did that was couched in love. And this was their last hope, committing them through prayer to to Satan and hoping that God would, would bring them back. We also learned about prayer. We've learned about prayer in many different ways. We've learned about uh, men and women in ministry and the different roles that they have there. We've learned about overseers and we've learned more, most recently about deacons and just kind of the, the folks in the church that are there for the order and structure and administration of the church that are so needed. And again, if we could circle back and, and talk about things that, that we need as a 18 month old church community, we need folks in the seats to begin to, to feel that call and say, you know what? I desire this, this noble, hard, challenging task. 
and I'm living in a way that, that echoes that. And the, the call there as leaders, I feel, um, scares us, maybe cautions us, maybe humbles us to be above reproach and to be one who's temperate and self-controlled and not given to addictions and one whose family is uh, respectful of them and everything seems to, to work. They're able to teach and they're just doing it. And again, like that, that implicit sort of um, encouragement to you is be that type of person. But also there's some of you in the room that need to start making steps towards leadership or at least volunteering or helping or, or beginning to fill roles in the church that are so needed. One example, and again, I don't want to make this a commercial, but it's just so present. Doug was talking about kids' ministry. Um, it seems to be growing. For some reason, we're attracting folks that have lots of children, very fertile people. Um, and their kids are going downstairs. What we want to do, how we have it right now is we've got, um, help me, the two and unders in a room, in a corral. We have babies and we have... Okay, yeah, listen to that. You've heard that our kids' ministry goes up through fifth grade, and we have ages three and up mixed in with our 10- and 11-year-old fifth graders. We desperately need your help. Our idea is to kind of create a pre-K and kindergarten class where those uh, people could be in, in a quadrant by themselves so that they could learn and gain things that are beneficial to them instead of thinking that they're all going to gain stuff equally. But like these are, these are easy ways where this idea of overseers and deacons, while it might be kind of up here in your mind, there's ways where you can kind of fill those roles and begin to help us work towards um, growth when it comes down to it. When you attract the new family that's got some kids and you take them downstairs, they might not want to partner with us because we're not quite there yet. I'm hoping that the people that we attract are people that want to help build things, but... It'd be good to, if we have the people here to start building things together already. And I think that we've kind of dropped the ball with creating opportunities for you to do that. Okay, back to the Bible. Um, so in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3, it says, this is the task, go fix the doctrine. Uh, and then again in, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it says, I hope to come to you soon, but I might not. So I'm writing these things so that, again, that same kind of so that clause if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the church. We come back to this idea after chapters of Paul's instructions to the people saying, this is what it's all about. This is the passage of gravitas. This is the moment with Daniel's son getting beat up in the field before Miyagi shows up and, and tutors him, okay? A um, couple things to point out just in this text here, he's supposed to know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That does not mean how you conduct yourselves here for the next 20 minutes. This means how you conduct yourself as a member of God's household, as a Christian, as someone who is supposed to be an ambassador for Jesus, as someone whose life has been utterly transformed by the gospel, and you step out of here and you go to SU and you go to Warwick and you go to work and you go to wherever you go, you don't cease to be a Christian. In fact, you continue on, and what does it look like for you to wear that label in those roles? 
This is the stuff that's been entrusted to Timothy. Teach them what it looks like, Timothy, because right now they just don't get it. Continuing on, he likens God's household to the church of the living God. And this is a point that some pastors make quite often. And I think it bears repeating. In our context, we've kind of associated the church which, with brick and mortar. We've associated the church with that thing over there, when in all actuality, the church is us. The church is God's people. We are God's household that go out and we do this day in and day out, sometimes better than others. But what does it look like to be that person in those various situations? And I think when you begin to break down those walls, a couple of things happen. One, we begin to create and maintain relationships with people who don't attend this church, which I think is a beautiful thing. The less competition and the less division that we have amongst ourselves, the better. Um, but the second thing is we also don't compartmentalize where that's the thing I do that's over there and I can just do whatever I want over here. It begins to strip that away where we start getting serious about this is not just a Sunday for a couple hours thing. This is a commitment that we've made and this is a commitment that Jesus has made to us that has totally changed who we are. I keep coming back to that because for a long time in my own life, it wasn't something that changed me in any meaningful way. This was just part of the routine. And even now, I still think it's important to, to self-assess so that we begin to see those traits where our lives are truly different because we are committed to Jesus. Not just because we're becoming better people, but because that's something that we want deep down. And I've seen some of you live that out in small ways and in big ways. Be encouraged in that, but keep pushing yourselves towards becoming more and more like Jesus because we truly are the church and we take that outside of this brick and mortar building. So what Paul's doing here in chapter one, he's saying, Timothy, guard the gospel and instruct people in what it looks like to be faithful to God's ordering of the world. The problems in chapter one are there's bad teaching. It's leading to dispute and speculation. There's no love and no knowledge in the people that are asserting themselves to be teachers. And also there's this idea of status where some people really wanted to be Torah teachers. They wanted to be the people with the microphones. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be um, looked at as authoritative voices, but they just didn't have love and they didn't have knowledge. And Paul says, that's a problem. We need to go and we need to fix this. In chapter three, Paul says, we need to demonstrate or show to them what proper conduct as a member of God's household looks like. This is the thing. Tim Timothy, go Go show them that. I've given you all this teaching and all this instruction leading up to this passage here. Um, go show them because there's problems. People are abandoning the faith. People that have potentially had a moment of commitment, and here I might be stepping on theological toes where we start delving into the once saved, always saved, do we lose salvation, all those things that are interesting for people as I'm talking right now and the rest of you are like, whatever, <laughs> like that sort of moment. Um, it says that they're abandoning the faith because people are leading them that way. And that's, that's bad because they're devoting themselves to these teachings, teachings like you can't get married and you can't eat food. It doesn't mean you're fasting for your entire life, but I think behind that is some things like this. So Paul himself talks about 
the issue of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The implication there is, it's good for a guy or a girl to be single. Why? Because they can get so much more stuff done. This is Paul talking as the church planter slash missionary saying, you can just get stuff done if you don't have anybody holding you. Holding you back sounds wrong. <laughs> Kate's shaking her head. Thank you, yes. Um, Thank you. Distracting. You're not responsible to anyone else. Yeah, there's certain obligations that you have at home that are beautiful and lovely. Kate, I love you. But Paul is saying if, you're, if you don't have those sorts of relationships or ties, then you can be so much more effective. That's the word I wanted, but I was scared to use it. You just can. He does go on, though, to say, to give some clarifications here. But what's happening is people have taken that teaching and they just run with it and they start saying, you can't get married. You can't get married. You should probably get divorced. You need to get out of here. Like all these sorts of things. They're trying to get to that level where they say things, but they're distorting the teachings that Paul has laid out already. So he goes on to say, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Side note. In 1 Corinthians 7, there's really interesting things that are happening here. One of them is Paul often will say, I say this, not the Lord. Later he says, the Lord says this, not me. I just want to throw that out there. I don't really want to clear that up for you, but just let that kind of circle around your head space like this because... For the folks that have grown up in the church where the Bible is God's word, what does it mean when Paul says, this is from me, not the Lord? Okay? All right. So I say this as a concession, not as a command. If you want to pick that up with me later, you can. But for right now, I just want to let that be. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, implication, single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is not a Christian teaching that if you're 18 and you really want to have sex, you should go ahead and get married because you just can't handle it. Everybody who's 18 wants to have sex. Okay, Paul is not just ad- addressing that. He's saying something a bit more nuanced. It's a different culture. It's a different context. Okay, I'm sure every 15-year-old boy just would want to be like, let's do it. I can't take it. Let's just... Okay, this is not what Paul's saying. Although not to throw a wrench in things, but it just is speaking, again, to different, different contexts. And I think that... We, I think that there's conversations there to be had because when Paul was writing this, it was a different mindset of the where's and the when's and the who's versus Christian America, when's and where's and who's, okay? So anyway, this is Paul on marriage and these are discussions here and these guys are coming up and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that when Paul has sort of already been down this road and taught in this way. In the same way, they, they said that you have to abstain from certain foods, and this is Romans 14. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak only eats vegetables. 
The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not uh, eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Here, there's, again, a very culturally rooted conversation that's going on here in are we able to eat anything that we want to. This isn't just a matter of, of health. This is a matter of cultic purity. This is a matter of there's certain things that in the history of Judaism were deemed to be unclean. But now it seems with the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's differences. Also, back in the day, the Jews had to be circumcised. There's also a discussion with Paul where he's saying, now do people have to become circumcised to be part of this group. He's kind of reteaching certain things and he's going in ways that are making people kind of uncomfortable because he comes off and says, hey, you know what? If, if you're okay eating, whatever, go for it. Another sub-discussion of this was um, meat that was offered to idols. That's in 1 Corinthians 8, I believe, where that's the discussion. So people are scared to eat certain foods for lots of reasons and Paul is saying, use discretion be led by the Spirit, and the implication is, and not everyone's going to end up on the same page. Some of you are going to say, can't do it, and that's fine. Some of you are going to say, I can do it, it's fine, whatever, and that's okay. But make sure that those two people, when they're in the same room at the same table, that they're not ticking each other off or being completely cavalier about their Christian liberties. This happens not just at the table. For us, like, let's go 2,000 years into church history. This isn't, can you eat this food or not eat that food? It's, can you drink this drink and not drink that drink? So you have one person, perhaps, that's very comfortable drinking alcohol, another person that's very not comfortable drinking alcohol for whatever reason. When those people are at the table together and they both love Jesus, the person who's able to drink shouldn't be like, yeah, give me another pint. This is great. Love it. Yeah, you're missing out. That kind of thing. It just shouldn't happen. You can tell how far I'm trying to manufacture some of your responses by how many leg kicks we get. And I've been trying to work on it, Kate and I. We just, you know, practice things and she tries to work, help me through it, but it just doesn't always work out. So, but in our context, there's still things that Christian liberties are in effect, but that doesn't give us license to be stupid about them in front of people that are, that Paul would say, are a bit weaker. I would also say that just because you can drink a beer and be okay with it doesn't necessarily make you the stronger Christian in, in the bunch, okay? Sometimes it just makes you not the stronger one in the bunch. Okay. Um, <laughs> This is later in the chapter. It says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. And it's incredible how, how easy it is for us to do that in the name of instruction or in the name of teaching. Like, oh, I've arrived at this place in my life where I can do these things and I feel totally fine with them. I'm going to impose that on other people. But Paul's saying, Stop. That's not the point at all. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. 
So these Torah teachers that were ascending said, you can't get married, taking Paul's teachings very literally, or probably other people's teachings as well, and saying, that's the thing. They were also taking this idea about food and saying, imposing things like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and missing out on the nuance that was going on. And Paul says, we've got to put a stop to that. It's not good to be there. So we have, in a sense, these, these moments of Paul trying to correct the bad teaching, and we have the negative side of, of the teaching. People are leaving the faith because of these guys. They're, they've devoted themselves to bad teachings. Perhaps they've started to engage in ethics that are not correct. They've, I don't think this is an issue, but perhaps like dissolving relationships because of so-and-so's teaching about marriage or not eating certain foods. Or, and at the, the root of all of it is not understanding God as the creator of all things, and that declaration at the end of Genesis 1 where he says, it's good. These guys have taken that and subverted it. Marriage is not good. Relationship, not good. This food, not good. Like, they've just started to take that idea and go in a different direction. So we have chapter 1 and chapter 3, very similar. Chapter 3 is that passage of gravitas that's kind of putting us in this moment, and Paul says the way beyond this is through the mystery of godliness, which is basically the story of Jesus. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. Um, I just want to go through it and call attention to a couple of things. But I think overall there's beauty in this idea of, hey, here's problems. We need to be aware of it the way beyond it is to focus on this. He was revealed in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. There's a, there's a play here in a lot of these lines of earthliness and heavenliness. I don't really like those terms, but there's kind of those sorts of things are, are um, hinging these lines together. He was revealed in the flesh. He showed up. He became man. This was unconventional for most religions at the time, not to say that Christianity was totally unique because it wasn't, uh, but Jesus as God who becomes flesh and lives like we do is a bit distinct. And for us, it should be one of the most beautiful truths that we can hold on to. You guys walk through stuff. You guys go through things. You suffer. You have issues, and we serve a God that's, that's been there, that understands and can relate to us. Not only was he revealed in the flesh, but as you know, the story continues, and he was vindicated by the Spirit at the resurrection. So Jesus lives, and then he dies, and when he is brought back to life, that was a moment of vindication where God says everything this is going to be an overstatement everything has been remedied by this one man the narrative trajectory of the Bible that got so screwed up in the garden he's shown up he's given us a different picture and now he's inaugurated the kingdom he's brought in a sense heaven to earth through his actions, his words, and his deeds, and it's proven in the resurrection. He was seen by angels. Nobody really knows what that's talking about. It could be angels, uh, literally, or it could be messengers. It could be angels at the resurrection. It could be at different times, but it seems as though um, 
it's referring again to this link with the vindication of the spirit and after his resurrection, he was seen by angels and he was proclaimed among the nations. So again, that heavenly angels and then very earthly uh, proclamation, which Paul is very passionate about going to tell this story. It's not just something that happens to you at one point in time, but it's something that must be proclaimed everywhere. And then finally, he was believed. Some translations say he was believed on in the world. Um, People began to see the importance of this story and live in light of it. And he was taken up into glory. This story for Paul is, is... framework for understanding all of reality, you could say. N.T. Wright goes on to say, this isn't just a secret, that idea of mystery. It's a story, and not just any old story, but the true story, the story of the God who became human and who now rules the whole world as its rightful Lord. This mystery won't lead you into a secret private religion. It will change your life by leading you out into a new way of life, a way of service and faith and discipleship and hope. For the Christians in the room that have claimed this for themselves, can that last sentence be said of you? That you have now been led out into a new way of life, a way of service and faith and discipleship and hope. Is that the change that has taken place in you Or is the change that's taken place in you simply, now I don't have to go to hell for all eternity? The way that the gospel gets marketed to people is oftentimes through that one simple question, where do you want to go when you die? And in that, we completely diminish the power and beauty and comprehensiveness of what Jesus came here to do. This story, for a lot of us, we've heard it climax in, Jesus died for my sins, but we should actually hear the story that climaxes, Jesus died for sins. Now, what I don't want you to hear is that there's no personal or individual connection here, because that's not true, but I do want you to begin to see yourself as part of something larger than yourself something that's more comprehensive. And that's the story that that Paul was looking at here. You've also heard it said, Jesus died to redeem me. And I think that it might be more accurately stated, Jesus died to redeem creation, of which you are a part, yes, but it goes beyond that. In Romans 8, Paul says, all creation groans and is waiting for Christ's work to reach its, its climax. It's not just about you. The story, as it's often been framed, is we now get to go to heaven because of what Jesus has done. There's truth in that, yeah, but it's also more realistically, perhaps, we now as part of this story, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, however you want to frame it, we become the folks that bring heaven to earth. Jesus, in his prayer, um, in the Lord's prayer, says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven like linking those two things together. And here we see in this story, we become part of Jesus's work even now that goes beyond just me and just you. I think for Paul, perhaps for Timothy and perhaps for a lot of the early church, it was this idea of Jesus in his death and resurrection has changed absolutely 
everything. In our lives, has Jesus changed anything? Paul says in the book of Colossians, I think he frames this very, very well for us. This is another, what's called a Christ hymn, uh, which we've seen here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16. There's another Christ hymn in Colossians 1. I just want you to hear uh, some of these descriptors. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, catch this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Yes, that story includes me and it includes you in that moment of faith where you say, I can't do this. In that moment of trust where you say, it's not about me, it can't be. It's got to be about Christ and his work and his perfection to, to bring about things that I could never bring for myself. I do think, though, that it's unfortunate that we often leave it there. We often leave it in that, what do I get out of it? That very American, individualistic, consumeristic gospel where it just becomes about the things that we receive from it and we fail to see the work that Christ is doing in you and you and you and you and them and those and like all over the world throughout all time. He has reconciled all things to himself. If we lived that out, not only would we begin to see ourselves in a different light as part of this community that goes well beyond just just me or just us, but I think that we would also begin to see people in a different light. And I think for Paul, he begins to see the Torah teachers in a different light, where they be, are, they're part of this, this thing. And it becomes our job to correct where correction is needed. It becomes our job to put our arms around people in the midst of suffering and doubt and difficulty. It becomes our job to do the work of Jesus as we bring heaven to earth. I hope that this idea isn't completely radical. And I hope that you haven't took away from it that I don't care about your personal individual relationship with Jesus because that is not true. But I hope that beyond that, we can begin to see that it goes well beyond just you. Jesus changes everything. Begin to live in light of that.